Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Well, John, you may not have marked it in your calendar, what with a tax deadline and National Bat Appreciation Day, both on April 17th, but the state has designated the last two weeks in April as High School Voter Education Weeks. We'll talk about that and also discuss the latest numbers on the childhood poverty rate in California, which is still disappointingly high and does have an impact on how kids do in school. And we don't have any choice but to talk about the gubernatorial race, which is now in full swing and which charter schools are emerging as a major issue. But first, let's go to David Washburn, our reporter in San Diego, who has been following school-based efforts to get students involved in the electoral process. Welcome, David. Good to be with you, John. High School Voter Education Weeks have been on the books in California, but this is a particularly significant year with a flurry of activity in the aftermath of the tragic shooting in Parkland, Florida, and marches all around the nation. So, you know, it's hard to get voters 18 to 24-year-old to vote. So tell us what's been going on in California and has it been making a difference? A lot's been going on in California, and I think you hit it right on the head when you're talking about the activism around the Parkland massacre. In addition to the fact the Trump administration has activated a lot of young people and young voters, and there's there's just a lot of activity around voting right now to the extent that a lot of people are comparing it to the late 1960s when student activists forced the 26th Amendment, which uh, led to dropping the voting age to to 18. The biggest thing that's happening right now is there is a law that is taking effect literally as we speak. It's a change to the motor voter law, and it combines the pre-registration law of a couple years ago signed by Governor Brown that basically allows 16- and 17-year-olds, when they get their driver's license or a state ID, to automatically be pre-registered to vote. Officials say that that could result in 200,000 new voters a year. So there's, there's a lot of activity around that, and then there's a lot going on as far as voter education weeks, another state law passed in recent years, that basically allows for voter registration drives to happen on high school campuses. In other words, first thing is to get them registered, but the other part is to educate them and tell them why it's important to vote? Yes. They've found that it's really crucial. If you want to turn someone into a lifelong voter, it is important to get them not just to vote in one election, but two consecutive elections. Once someone votes in two consecutive elections, then the chances are you have them for life, according to analysis of voting records. And uh, Alex Padilla, the Secretary of State, has really made it one of his signature efforts during his tenure as Secretary of State to increase voting in this group. And he's actually uh, the, he claims to be the first Secretary of State in the nation to make increasing voter participation part of his job description, part of his statutory job description. Well, David, you've been in the schools, too. Are they involved in what's happening there? Well, a lot of this is happening on school campuses, voter education weeks, you know, school campuses throughout California are holding registration drives on campus. 
The uh, it's very much student run. However, I'm noticing that you have certain students that are that are spearheading the the voter registration drives. Some of them are are being assisted by advocacy groups in San Diego, for example. There's a youth council that's actually run by the uh, public defender's office that is organizing. Uh, registration drives on several campuses uh, in in San Diego. So you're seeing a real combination of, you're seeing some traditional uh, just on-campus drives, but you're also seeing a lot of advocacy groups getting involved. And again, in, in, in the aftermath of Parkland, you're seeing a lot of students kind of step up and, and, and take leadership. From what you've seen, David, are schools supportive of these efforts? And is it actually part of history classes or economics even, I heard? What's going on? Going back to about 2013, you've had several laws passed that are really all about increasing voter education and civics education in reference to voting in schools. They have, for example, voter education in 2013, AB 700 was passed, which basically requires that voter education be a part of high school curriculums. So whether it's, you know, your government classes or civics classes, there is a lot, there has been a big push in recent years to make voter education part of curriculums. And then the voter education weeks, you know, build on that. And then on top of that, of course, you have a lot of just activism around voting um, by advocacy groups, youth, youth advocates you know, throughout California. Well, great, David. Thank you. We'll be checking back at the end of the two-week period and doing some totaling and up and to see what kind of difference it has made. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, actually, John, this is not the last of voter education weeks in high schools because there's another two weeks in September that have also been designated with that title. Good. So this is going to be a year of great activity on high school campuses. I did have to just mention, David was talking about the 1960s, and the organizing then. But I recall that really the focus then was not on electoral politics. In fact, that was seen as very mainstream, very conventional. And there was a feeling that we had to transform the whole system and that electoral politics wasn't the way to go. So this is going to be interesting to see to what extent people believe that elections can affect the kind of change that people want. But talking about electoral politics, last week, the gubernatorial campaign in California got a big jolt when Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of Netflix, contributed $7 million to the campaign of Antonio Viragosa, or at least to an independent expenditure committee that was set up by the California Charter School Association Advocates. That's the political and advocacy arm of the California Charter Schools Association. That's right. You can't give that much directly to a candidate. So it goes to these committees, and Reed was joined by Eli Broad, another extremely prominent charter backer in California. He put in $1.5 million. And so we are just now waiting to see what kind of funding floodgates those two contributions have opened. Well, we know that the race at this point appears to be for second place. The top two in this election primary on June 5th, the top two will meet in November. Newsom has a quite a sizable lead. And however, Viergosa right now is third, slightly behind John Cox, a Republican, although lots of people are still undecided. John, just explain that. Well, why, what, do, what do you mean the race is for number two? The top two candidates in the primary on June 5th will then go on in November to square off against each other. So everybody else will be eliminated. So regardless of the party they're in. That's right. Top two, regardless of party. If John Cox comes in second, 
then Newsom is clearly going to be the next governor in California because there's no chance that a Republican would win unless there's some major controversy or some big disaster for Newsom during the campaign. But the view is that if Viragosa can come in, num in number two, there is a chance that he and Newsom could have a real contest in November. Yeah, I think so. It'd be undecided who Republicans will vote, independents will vote. So it's really key, well, and it's a couple of percentage points. One would think that $8.5 million might make a difference. It provides TV and radio ads that haven't been heard yet. So I think the question that you mentioned is what will CTA, which is California Teachers Association, which is backing Newsom, what's it going to do between now and in first week in June? So really, the race is really at full speed right now between now and uh, June 5th, which is uh, actually less than uh, seven weeks away. Right. And CTA has been spending a lot of money on radio ads, but they've been generic. They've been criticizing privatizers, they call them, for trying to take over district schools by pushing charter schools and talking about billionaires giving lots of money and buying democracy. But it hasn't mentioned anyone by name, hasn't attacked Via Ragosa. So a question is now, will they then change their strategy and go after him and support Newsom? by name. Well, what's peculiar is that Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom is portrayed by charter school advocates as being anti-charter, which is actually not really the case. He says he's for charters as long as they are well managed, there's transparency, and uh, he's also against for-profit charter schools. But I believe the Charter School Association is also against for-profit charter schools. That's right. And the issue here is that Newsom has been endorsed by the California Teachers Association, which now is engaged in a major conflict with the Charter School Association. But at the same time, CTA says they are not against charter schools per se. They have not called for a moratorium. And they're also just calling for more transparency. Yes, but there's a but here. And the latest front in this battle over charter schools is a bill. It's Senate Bill 1362, sponsored by Jim Bell of San Jose. That would enable school boards to reject a charter application based on a finding that it's not in the interests of students as a whole and may have a financial impact. You may not need a moratorium for those districts who don't like charters to so simply vote one down. John, just, just let me clarify the bill would say that districts could deny a charter application based on the financial impact that it would have on the district. On the district. And under current law, they cannot do that. No. It has to be based on some kind of educational grounds. Is that correct? Right now, there's about a um, dozen plus criteria that if a charter application meets these criteria, then the then a district is supposed to approve a charter. And financial impact is not part of that law never has been in 25 years of the charter law. And so now, as their district's facing big expenses and had, some of them have lots of charters, they want to change the law. There was a hearing this week on that. And I think that's the vagueness of the language. I think it had, has led to a weak delay. They want to see if we can work with Jim Bell to get this language and get the charter folks to see if that language can be more precise. And even the members of the Senate, Ben Allen, who was a school board member himself, says he understands districts' dilemma because they're faced with higher costs. But he wants that language to be more precise. We'll be talking about this more in the weeks ahead. It's a big but, deal. But why... Are the charter advocates so concerned at this point? Obviously, Reed Hastings believes it's worth $7 million. He could put in another $7 million, as much as he wants over the next few weeks. But what is at stake now? Because charters have been growing. California has close to 1,300 charter schools. So what's the concern right now? 
I think that the charter folks sense a lot of resistance now that things have changed. Districts facing financial hardships are really beginning to look at charters. Even those that have been supportive of charters are saying, look, we can't lose any more students. That's the basis of our revenue. And we're potentially perhaps laying off some teachers. It's this financial impact. Charters are saying, don't blame charters for your financial problems, basically. So it's really, you know, the tension and the pressure, it's been there before. Now it's really increasing. This charter supporters don't trust Newsom. I think you characterized him correctly. So we'll see what happens. And the numbers show that the growth rate, which has been very healthy of charter schools over the last 25 years, has actually slowed dramatically. Uh, just five years ago, the growth rate from number of charters from one year to the next increased by over 8%, which was actually on the low end. Many years, it was over double digits. A couple of years, it was in the 25, 30% increase. But this year, the number of charter schools only increased by 1.6% over last year. So there's been a slowing in the growth of charter school expansion in the state. And I think that is what concerns charter advocates and I think is going to drive a lot of the contributions to the governor's campaign, because the governor really has more impact on education policy in the state than any other statewide official, and certainly more than the superintendent of public instruction. That seat is also up for grabs. In, That's right. In June. Yes, you know, K-12 education hadn't been a big issue in a gubernatorial race until now, but clearly it will be between now and June 5th. Well, we'll be obviously following this closely in the weeks ahead between now and June 5th, when really the race could be all, all but wrapped up, depending on who comes in second, as you uh, described earlier, John. Before we go, Lewis, we wanted to briefly talk about the childhood poverty rate in California. New data came out this week. Yes, and it shows that California has actually the highest child poverty rate in the country. That's if you adjust for expenses. But still, pretty shocking. Statewide, it's 22.8%, nearly 23%, almost one out of four children in California. And in L.A. County, where, of course, millions of, of kids live, 28.3% of poverty. Again, that's adjusted for the very high expenses in some of these major metropolitan areas in California. Yeah, I think it shows that California, you know, is still the sixth largest economy in the world and a lot of wealth in California, but it also shows divisions in income in, and the cost of living for just surviving and housing. And it's uh, a really a split between the wealthy and not. And this is a, an education issue because the research is compelling that the biggest contributor to the achievement gap is the income levels of students. And I think teachers make a difference, type of school you're in makes a difference, and those in-school factors, but the biggest factor is the income level of the student. So one could argue that what really is going to make a difference, the biggest difference for kids in California is improving the economic conditions for those families and kids at the bottom of the income level. We can have all these discussions about charter schools and teacher preparedness and so on, but addressing poverty for kids is going to be a crucial issue, and this is a big structural issue, and certainly be interesting to know what the gubernatorial candidates' views on how to address that issue will be. Yes, it's 
a source of instability for kids to see all this pressure in the family and whether it's food or rent or the like. So it is an issue that whether schools like it or not, they need to deal with. Well, schools are dealing with it. Many schools are establishing uh, wraparound services, the notion of community schools, providing health care and some of the other kinds of services to offset the impact of poverty on really millions of kids and families who are struggling to get by. I think it's a reminder of what schools have to deal with every day, and it's a reminder to those without children in the school what teachers need to deal with or forced to deal with every day. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks, John, for joining us again. I'll see you next week. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. And thanks to you for listening. See you next week.